0: support for Inkslingers comes from the Leon Levy Center for Biography, cultivating important discussions about the art and craft of biography. Welcome to Inkslingers. I'm Jenny Skoog. Today's guest is Professor Nicholas T. Boggs. Professor Boggs is currently at work on a literary biography of James Baldwin to be published by FSG, which has been supported by research fellowships from the NEH, the Leon Levy Center for Biography, and the NYU Center for the Humanities. He received his PhD from Columbia and now teaches at the Department of English at New York University. Nicholas Boggs, welcome to Inkslingers.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, what brought you to James Baldwin as a subject?
1: Well, Judith Thurman, the biographer, talks about herself as an accidental biographer, and I think actually a lot of biographers see themselves this way. You aren't really trained to be a biographer. You don't, you know, you don't grow up thinking I want to be a biographer someday. I mean, most of us are, are writers or, or academics or poets. Um, but for me, um, I came to Baldwin many, many years ago. I mean, I was actually in junior high school and public schools in Washington, D.C., and there was a, a drawing of James Baldwin um, on the wall that my English teacher had put up there. So I actually saw him before I ever read him. Um, and something about his the intensity of his eyes, even in this Drawing um, as I remember it, it may be retroactive, but I remember being sort of stunned by him. And then I borrowed my twin sister's copy of Giovanni's Room, I think a year later, uh, sort of read it in secret, kind of um, let Baldwin go. And then in college is when I really got excited about him again. I took a, a class on him at Yale and I discovered an out of print sort of children's book for adults, he called it. And that set me off on a journey to kind of republish the book and uncover the story behind it and it really wasn't until i kind of finished that project in 2018 or around that time that i realized oh wait a second i think there's a i think there's a biography here
0: you read giovanni's room in secret tell me about why it was so secretive to read that book
1: sure i did i mean i think for many for many people but certainly for many gay men of my generation and 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 older uh, I think Richard Goldstein, who did an important interview with James Baldwin in The Village Voice in 1987, called it a, a vector of self-discovery for a whole generation, and it's true. Before we had, uh, you know, television shows and films, you know, popular culture representing, you know, uh, same-sex experiences, literature really served that that function for us. And uh, Giovanni's Room was the first time that I sort of saw that represented, um, you know, in a in the book. And of course I was not yet comfortable with certain aspects of myself. So I hid, I hid the copy and then went back to it. um, And, you know, to then learn that he was also writing about race relations in these really important, fascinating ways. You know, my father was a civil rights attorney and activist in DC. So it just sort of brought together all of these different facets of my, of my life and my experience in really sort of powerful and unusual ways.
0: You wrote an introduction to a re-release of Baldwin's only children's book that you just talked about, Little Man, Little Man. How were you involved in the republication of this book?
1: It was, that was the book that I discovered at the Beinecke when I was, I think a junior in college, so around 1996. Um, And it was out of print. And I reached out to Baldwin's uh, first or early biographer and his friend and personal secretary, David Leeming, and I think I sent like the first email I ever wrote was written to him, asking if he knew more information about the illustrator, Yoran Kazak. And Leeming's biography is incredible. It had just come out when I was in college and it's comprehensive, he knew everybody, but he didn't know Yoran Kazak. So I reached out to, um, he said he 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 thought he was dead. So I kind of gave up, but a few years later, uh, I, I wrote some emails to art historians in Paris, seeing if they had any more information about this deceased French artist, and the next thing I knew, I got a phone call from him uh, in my studio apartment in Brooklyn, being saying, you know, he had a French-accented voice, and he was in his sixties, and he said, "I'm alive. Come visit me in Paris." So I signed up for my third credit card. I was in grad school, stu- grad school, and uh, I went over and and met him, and that sort of set in motion a long journey to get to get the book republished, which culminated um, in 2018 with my co-editor Jennifer Devere Brody at Stanford with Duke University Press, which did a fantastic job. And I worked with uh, Baldwin's niece and nephew who has sort of inspired the book. They wrote the afterword and the foreword and we had a launch event in Harlem at the Schaumburg and it was a a very sort of special and gratifying experience.
0: I wanna back up and talk about that 2003 meeting with Kazak, uh, Baldwin's collaborator, this French artist. You open up a third credit card. How many meetings did you have with him and how long did you stay in France?
1: It was very exciting. I mean, you can imagine. I, I had been. I had already published about the book, Little Man, Little Man, um, and then to it was almost like a ghost or a, or a character from a novel, you know, coming to life. It was extraordinarily um, exciting, and I went over there for. He had an exhibition. Uh, it actually ended up being his the final like, solo exhibition of his of his life, hmm. and the, and it was. Um, we had never met, so I went into the gallery, and this man came up to me. And I didn't realize it was him and he didn't realize who I was, even though he knew I was coming. And we started to have a, a conversation about La Lumiere, the light in the gallery. And, and only later did his son, who was actually Baldwin's godson, come up and introduce us. And then I, I interviewed him. I stayed for like a few days. I met his, I met his wife, I met his children. Um, and then I came back the following summer and lived in Paris to interview him for the entirety of that summer. And unfortunately he, he died in 2005, so just two years later, uh, he died of cancer, unfortunately. But he was a magnetic, charismatic, uh, uh, sort of diehard, bohemian, anti-establishment artist. Um, And he was just, you could see uh, Baldwin, Baldwin had a lot of friends and people in his life who kind of were outsiders and he was certainly among them.
0: And so when you met with him, were you recording these conversations or were you taking notes? What were you doing to make sure that you remembered what he was saying about Baldwin? Uh,
1: I did. I did record them, um, and I did take notes. I also had uh, a friend who was whose French was better than mine, along uh, to kind of help me help me translate because his his English wasn't very good. My French is not that great, so I do I do have the tapes, um, and I transcribed all of them. Luckily, because a couple of years later. I was a postdoc at, at Wesleyan University, and I uh, had just finished transcribing them. And I went off from my apartment to teach a Baldwin seminar, and I came back, and some, there was a cigarette on the on the stairs leading up to my apartment, and then a hole in the door. And I stupidly walked right in, and I didn't have much because I was had just finished my PhD. But among the items stolen were an old VCR, <laughs> and. Um, my recording device with the final cassette in it. So um, fortunately, I just that afternoon finished transcribing.
0: So these recordings that except for the one that's lost, are you going to donate them to a library somewhere?
1: I hope so. I have a lot of I have a lot of materials. I think, you know, um, I've benefited greatly from the generosity of others, Uh, foremost among them, David Leeming, who dedicated, uh, not dedicated, but he donated all of his archives to the Beinecke. Um, where, so I was able to access uh, original interviews that he did with Baldwin in the eighties and others that, uh, so I think it's important for biographers to, once their book is published, <laughs> to yeah donate the knowledge that they, that they have, because the reality is there are aspects of interviews that I do that I won't use that might be very useful to others, just as is the case with with Leeming's archives. Um, I'm also hopeful that some of the original archives I came across related to Little Man, Little Man can eventually be donated or somehow passed along to to the Schomburg, which has an incredible archive of both the Beinecke and the Schomburg have incredible Baldwin archives and wonderful, thoughtful curators um, helping people navigate them.
0: The James Baldwin Archives are housed only at the Schomburg, or where else are they?
1: The, the, the papers were were acquired by the Schomburg in two thousand seventeen, and that's the most voluminous for sure. I mean, just massive amounts of drafts, correspondence, um, fan letters, uh, you know, business records. Just, uh, I take my students there when I'm teaching courses. It's just a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful archive. And then but the Beinecke, for some years, has had a very, very substantial archive as well. There are also the Buford Delaney papers are also at uh, at the Schomburg, which are important. But Emory also has some holdings, some Baldwin holdings. Um, I have not checked those out. Um, and actually, the British Library has uh, some some interesting materials, not like primary stuff that he wrote, but um, but video recordings and first editions of of sort of the the British editions, which are interesting to look at.
0: So what questions are you trying to answer with your biography on James Baldwin?
1: Well, you know, I'm in the middle of writing it. So in some ways I have some general approaches and ideas, but I really felt it was important to kind of see where where the research took me. Um, Like I said, Lehman's biography is foundational for for all of us who are, who are writing about Baldwin today or, or inspired by him. Um, but it was written, you know, almost 30 years ago and we're in a new era and a new moment. And uh, one of the things that Leeming's book made possible within the university was the rise of kind of Baldwin studies. Um, and there have been a lot of developments of thinking Baldwin, what we now call you know, intersectionally that weren't available to us in the same ways in the nineties. Um, and thanks very much. To the vocabularies that Baldwin helped helped us, you know, develop and acquire today, so there hasn't been a trade biography since since Leeming. So I part of my task is to kind of draw on the knowledge that's been produced across this discipline, but make it accessible to a broader readership because so many people are interested in Baldwin now. I would have never predicted this 20 years ago, but he's sort of p- really part of the cultural conversation now, as he should be you know, around racial justice, the prison industrial complex, uh, sort of the instability of sexual identities. Um, you know, he's just, he's just a key, he's a key voice, but he can sometimes get reduced to sound bites, which happens to, you know, any number of, of key cultural figures. So, so part of what I saw was, okay, how can I kind of um, not translate, but, you know, draw on this incredible um, archive of scholarship that's been happening um, to illuminate his importance today. Um, I also became increasingly interested in various sort of relationships, geographies and communities that sort of sustained and enabled his, his art. I mean he, he called himself a transatlantic commuter. He, he was in Istanbul, he lived in, in Corsica, this south of France. So I ended up you know, having to visit all these places, poor me, but you know I, I really felt it was important to visit them not just the sort of usual suspects of Harlem and Paris, although they are certainly extremely important. Um, I, I, I need to go back to many of these places, but I, I've now visited pretty much all of the key locations in his life.
0: So in visiting all of these key locations in his life, did you have physical addresses where he lived and were you able to enter some of them if you did?
1: Yeah, it's very important. Uh, Rob, the great Robert Caro uh, has this book, uh, you know, Working, where he talks about um, what makes a great biography in addition to reading everything, <laughs> turning every leaf or turning every page, as he said, mm-hmm. you have okay. to go into the places so you can really um, describe. And, and especially in my biography is a sort of a narrative biography. So it's really telling his life story in addition to weaving kind of literary, some accessible literary analysis, but it really is the story of his life in these various places. Um, so one of the first I went to is kind of a rite of passage for many uh, people writing about Baldwin, which was the uh, St. Paul de Vance, where he moved in the seven, early 70s and eventually bought his house. It's also where he died in 1987, it's sort of it's where a cross-section of his Friends came through. Everybody from Miles Davis and Nina Simone to Josephine Baker, Henry Louis Gates—you know, uh, you name it. So anyway, many Baldwin scholars and people writing about him have traveled there and tried to essentially break into the um, <laughs> into the house. And I'm definitely one of them. I, I jumped over the back of of the um, of the wall. I didn't go inside the building, but I was able to kind of see. Where you know where he looked out at the Mediterranean, and where where he sat on in his sort of um, outdoor space, you know, having hosting these friends in writing and writing, and I could, unfortunately, as as many people know, uh, through a lengthy legal battle, uh, Baldwin's estate lost uh, this property, and it's been turned being turned into condominiums, you know, as we speak, which is a really sad. Wait a
0: second. So are they are they tearing it down, or are they just like? gutting what's going on
1: it's been going on for many 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 years at this point um and I'm not actually sure where things are at present but as I understand it yes it's being torn down and turned into the condominiums I do think there's a there's definitely an effort by some organizations to kind of um preserve an aspect of it and there's an artist residency there now which is what Baldwin actually wanted the building to be but you know it's a great Travesty, and it sort of—it's—it's. Um, it's, uh, we need to preserve these spaces. I spent uh, uh, the January at the James Merrill House, which they preserved his house in Stonington, and it's so wonderful. And Baldwin really deserves, obviously, um, the same kind of commemoration and treatment. So, uh, so there's the South of France. Um, there's, there's Istanbul where I went in the summer of 2019 he spent much of the 60s there uh, the scholar Magdalene Zaborowska has written an incredible book about that about that period called um, also from Duke actually called the erotics of Exile James Baldwin's Turkish decade but there's still a lot more work to be done about his time there um, and then um, he went to court so how do you yeah.
0: how do you know where to go when you're there of course you have some addresses. Were you able to go back into his writings and rediscover certain places?
1: Well, I was very fortunate that I had a Turkish research assistant who was who's fantastic who who took me around, but also that there is this very generous community of Baldwin scholars. There's Magdalena. Uh, there's also. Um, Ed Pavlich had been there. So he he's, he's a poet and scholar and he shared with me some of the addresses. I was, and so did she, and I was able to cobble it together. The problem is that a lot of these addresses change over time. And the same is true of a lot of addresses in Paris where, where he lived. Um, you have to figure out um, where he was before. But yes, I was able, to, there were a few different spots that he lived in. Uh, some of them right on the Bosporus, remarkable. Spots, um, and I was able to um, to see them. But you know, then you look up and you're like, "Oh, there's a huge bridge there that wasn't there when he lived there." And now, so it just changes the whole mm. cars going by. It just changes the whole the whole ambiance of yeah. um, You know, and even you know, he spent time in. So I haven't been there yet, but I want to. But he ten- he spent time in the Swiss Alps um, where he wrote his first novel. But the Swiss Alps don't even look the way they did they did. Back then because of climate change and everything. So you have to be careful about grafting. You you have to really be aware of how things are now and how they have actually changed from even, you know, half a century ago.
0: So you mentioned that you've been in touch with James Baldwin's living family members, including a niece and a nephew. How do these relationships affect your work on this biography?
1: The experience of republishing the book was really my my only sort of experience, uh, which was a wonderful one. Um, You know, uh, Baldwin's Nephew uh, Tijon was the inspiration for Little Man, Little Man. Um, he asked Baldwin, you know, every time Baldwin would come home from, from France, his nephew would say, Uncle Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy, when are you gonna write a book about me? And uh, eventually he did and it surprised him. It just showed up one day in boxes, you know, I think around Thanksgiving or something. Uh, and another character in the book was in, his niece, Aisha was inspired, uh, Blinky was inspired by her. And so it was really um, the process of working with them on writing the afterward and the forward to little man, little man, that the book took on uh, this really, really special dimension of um, how do you, to have the adults who inspired the book when they were children, write The afterward and the forward is just, you know, such a gift to, to the world, which is what little man, little man was supposed to be. It was it was inspired by his niece and it was for them, but it was also dedicated to Buford Delaney. You know, his, he was his mentor who was unfortunately sort of um, in ill health at the time and would die soon after the book was published. So the book was supposed to be a gift to individuals, but also to the world. So it was very, very special to work with them. We then did a two minute trailer where Tijan, who now lives in Paris appropriately, um, did, read from the book and did the voiceover and we had some archival footage so it was very, very special to work with them.
0: Tell me about your research process during the pandemic.
1: Well, I'm very, very grateful to the Leon Levy Center for Biography. When the pandemic hit, it was like a month after or two weeks after it hit that I got the very exciting news um, that I would be able to really devote myself for the last year uh, to the writing of this book. I have done much of the research, but I was planning on going back that summer to back to Istanbul Um, back to um, uh, Paris, you know, just sort of some wrap-up kind of research. So, but in the end, it's been a blessing in a sense because I need to write, I need to finish the full draft of the book and I'm about halfway through before I know what the gaps are that I need to go back to Europe um, to fill in. So the pandemic has been very challenging in many ways, uh, for sure, but I would actually say you know, for the writing of a biography, you, there's always more research you can do. There's always another person you can go see. There's always another archive. Um, there's always, you can always reread another book. Being forced to stay in one place was strangely, um, or perhaps not strangely, a benefit. And I was able to, I think, I think it was Cheever who said, like, to make himself right, he takes off his belt and just ties himself, ties the belt around the chair so that he, so that he writes the book. And, and in a sense, uh, that's, what I, that's what I was forced to do. There's also a, a, a massive amount of transcription that takes place um, for a biography. So I, I had the time to do that. And again, I'm very grateful to the Levy Center. I had a, a research assistant through them who did a lot of helping with, help with the transcription and the notes.
0: When you applied for the fellowship at the Leon Levy Center, tell me about the application process.
1: I had actually applied a couple times, so you know I have a lot of friends who apply for residencies and fellowships, and and it's I always tell them it's just there is no such thing as rejection; it's just an invitation to apply again. Um, and so I think I applied at least at least once before and did not get it. And um, but the application is. Uh, you have an over, I think you have a statement, you put together a statement of your, and you have a, um, a writing sample, and some letters of recommendation. And I think it's, I think it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and, um, and I just think, I think having a book contract was not essential, but I think having that helped. Uh, and I think also just having a better sense of of where the biography was going so that the writing sample was as strong as possible. They know it's, they obviously know it's a draft but you really want to have your best writing um, you know, as part of your sample.
0: So I'm going to go back to when you were a teenager and you read Giovanni's Room um, in secret, right? And then to today where you're writing this biography, how has your view of Baldwin evolved from the time that you read that book to today?
1: Great question, I mean, I think when I read him then, it was very much kind of the politics of identification, right? Which we all need at a certain time in our lives, right? To see ourselves reflected back at, back at us. Um, and it was a very complex uh, representation of white masculinity that Baldwin has in that novel. The narrator, David, is sort of wrestling with not just his sexual identity, but his kind of uh, limited gender notions as well in relation to women uh, his, his limited uh, his limited capacity as an American uh, and specifically to see past this kind of myth of American innocence so Baldwin wrapped that all all together and that was that was important for me to kind of confront on multiple levels at that at that at that age and then it was very productive for me to realize that Baldwin uh, actually rejected a lot of these identity categories like, he didn't like gay, even like he didn't want to be a quote unquote Negro writer. He was constantly complicating the idea of sort of these stable identities and the idea that we have to identify in the ways that dominant culture tells us we have to identify. And that that was part of the evolution too. But in terms of, you know, reading all of his work, exploring his life, talking to people about his life, you just realize What an extraordinarily extraordinary life he lived, which is not always true of writers. Like, we spend a lot of our time sitting in these chairs, maybe with our belts kind of wrapped around the chair, you know, tied around the chair. Baldwin lived an extraordinarily social life, um, in part because he could write it at night when everyone else went to sleep. But he also lived through, um, you know, the sexual revolution, the gay liberation movement, civil rights movement, like anti-colonial movements. Um, He lived this intensely global life. Um, I just don't think there's another person out there with that who lived that breadth and intensity um, that Baldwin lived. So kind of understanding um, his struggles, but also like his his triumphs and his life is sometimes thought of as this kind of tragedy, Um, but in many ways, and it certainly is tragic, he died way too young in many ways, his life is just, I mean, to think that he was capable of writing, I think he wrote something like after 1970, he wrote like seven of his 27 books or something like that. He, know, he didn't slow down, you know, and he kept changing. Uh, he kept experimenting and he kept speaking the truth to power, you know, right. throughout, throughout his life. He did not um, ever, in, in fact, in many ways, he became more radical the older he got and the more he sort of saw a kind of global global struggle. Um, yeah. So I had just have an immense amount of um, interest and respect for his, his toughness, actually.
0: You're a white man uh, writing about a black man. What pushback or what feedback have you gotten in this regard?
1: I mean, that's a great question. And I think an important one, especially in the context of Baldwin, right? Um, Baldwin, of course, lived a profoundly interracial life. Um, and he wrote about race relations, but not in a static way. I mean, he it, it shifted over, over the course of his life. Um, my feeling, you know, is that we need more white people, not fewer white people reading Baldwin. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, I think you cannot ignore uh, a lot of the problems in the publishing industry, which are sort of starting to change. but. Uh, too slowly in my mind, right? We need more uh, black publishers. We need more black women in publishing We on both sides, right? Whether they're agents, whether they are editors, whether they are the publishers themselves. So it's both about uh, supporting more uh, black writers across many genres, but also putting, having people in positions of authority to make those decisions, right? Who aren't just white. So So I can't sit here and just, you know, my project isn't to show that white people should be able to write about James Baldwin. It's part of a much broader sort of uh, discussion about about publishing, uh, about culture. Uh, And I think the the questions that are happening around uh, appropriation are really important. White appropriation of black stories are really important to have. And I think actually, because many of the people writing about or through or with Baldwin um, are, from various different identities, right? They can be black, white, Asian, straight, gay, non-binary. Baldwin's life and work in particular is a place to open up conversations, right? Rather than than shut them down. And in my opinion, uh, if everybody in high school was reading Baldwin, if every white person (laughs) read Baldwin, um, that's a good thing.
0: So, as a scholar, how do you toggle between academic writing and your more creative side, or writing for mainstream publications?
1: Yes, that is um, that actually is has been part of the fun of this biography. I have to say, there's been many challenging aspects, but you know, I got my PhD uh, first, and and I enjoyed it a lot, and I enjoyed research and close reading and literary criticism. Um, but I was a little I wanted, you know, in, in, in sort of at least when I was in grad school, biography was seen as kind of a bad thing, right? Like you're you're going to read the literature through that lens and it's reductive and you need to sort of look at the language and which which I still believe in you know, the latter part. But I was always interested in the lives and you're not supposed to talk about that in the seminar room. And I was also interested in narrative, right? I write I write fiction a bit and creative nonfiction as well. And that's probably where my later, my next books will be located. So I went and got my MFA strangely in some ways after the PhD. And in a way, by the time I realized I was writing the biography, it, did, it kind of made sense, right? I could bring together my interest in kind of narrative and scenes and place, uh, and character development, and pair it with my interest in kind of literary history and and literary criticism. Um, so I feel very fortunate to be, you know, with a publisher who kind of really encourages precisely precisely that combination. Right? Uh, there's a lot there's a lot to be learned. For, I I do think sometimes biographies about writers that don't really talk about the writing are are a little strange to me. Um, I wanna be able to have a balance, um, but I also want to help readers enter uh, the literary works in ways that aren't alienating, right? In ways that that invite them to think about the relationship between the life and the work, not in a sort of, they're the same thing, because they're not, but what are the residences? What are the influences? How do they mutually kind of constitute each other over the course of a lifetime?
0: What's your writing process like?
1: Writing a biography is like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, you're, you are using so many different sources from the literary text to interviews that you've done to the interviews that others have done to prior biographies, to scholars, to newspaper articles. And I was very befuddled by the whole process for many years. And then my agent said, well, why don't you storyboard the whole thing? So I was actually at McDowell Colony uh, where Baldwin went. In the '50s, a few times in the 50s and I was actually in the studio this was back in 2011 I hate to say because so much time has passed but um, <laughs> I was in the studio that he stayed in he'd signed his name there and I just storyboarded like I was working on the book proposal at that time but I just storyboarded his whole life and I found that to be immensely helpful like almost looking at it like a film like you have to think in terms of scenes Um, you really do um, when you're writing a biography it can't be all scenes but it's important to have scenes to keep the reader engaged and kind of organize the life um, in a way that that you want that is readable right Mm -hmm. Um, so I found storyboarding and I and I've and I've kept doing that throughout the process of writing the book I don't you know I'll spend a week just storyboarding a section before Mm -hmm. I even you know sit down uh, sit down to read it I uh, Candace Millard is a is a biographer and she did a recent zoom about, about sort of tension and suspense mm. in, in narrative nonfiction and uh, and she also storyboards although I have friends who don't they just they find that too prescriptive um and so I think every everybody has a different process but a lot of people do it, a lot of this work on their computers I physically need physical archives uh, I need the process of tacking the piece of paper into the corkboard. I need yeah. to go over to the bookshelf and pick up a book and open it and sit down and read it. I, all of that kind of tangible um, work for me is part of the is part of the sort of creative process.
0: Hmm. Would you ever write a memoir?
1: I think I would. I mean, I think I I I, I have pieces of of one that I was working on before. In fact, for, for in the beginning, I thought I would be writing, um, I might be interspersing elements of memoir with this book and then realized that that, that that was not working. Um, yeah, I think my next project is going to be a kind of mix of memoir with some fiction, actually, sort of a, a, hybrid, a hybrid book. Um, I, I, obviously, Baldwin is de- very dear to me, but I've been sitting with him now for many many years and my next project will will be branching will be branching elsewhere and genre wise as well
0: what do you do for self-care
1: i try not to do what baldwin did for self-care to be honest which was you know to uh to drink scotch a lot but um i do some of that but actually i do a lot of the really kind of normal boring things i suppose of going for long walks i run um, I also, um, you know, some people listen to jazz and I, and I listen to some jazz, but the most calming sound for me is turning on the tennis channel and hearing a tennis ball being hit back and forth for some reason. I don't know. You could do a <laughs> psychoanalytic analysis of, of what's going on there, but I, uh, I find that immensely calming just to have that, that sound. And I also, I also play tennis, um, but, um, self-care, I'm also... Um, I'm also I actually think being out of New York City has has been a form of self-care for the last year I find it very challenging to write in the city um, as much as I as I love living there Um, so I think uh, getting out of the city is also a form of self-care
0: well Nicholas I've really enjoyed speaking with you today thank you so much
1: thanks so much for having me
0: do you have a question, comment, or want to suggest someone for a future episode? Tweet us at Inkslingers2 or email us at Inkslingerspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram to see photos of today's guest and don't forget to visit our website at Inkslingerspodcast.com. Inkslingers is written and produced by Jenny Skoog and Sierra Holt. Help with sound design and editing comes from Eric Farley. Special thanks to the Leon Levy Center for Biography for their support. Our music is dubbed Feral by Kevin MacLeod.